Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a quick reminder that if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. The topic today is juicy, so let's get straight into it. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Every podcast we introduce a Principle of Charity personal challenge. Our personal challenge this week is drawn from the work of master negotiator Chris Foss. Foss says... Break the habit of attempting to get people to agree with you immediately or say yes to you. Being pushed for a yes to your views makes people defensive. Our love of hearing yes makes us blind to our own defensiveness when someone pushes us to say yes and we are not ready. Someone saying no to your views is not a failure. We have learned that no is the anti-yes and therefore a word we dislike. But a no to your views often just means, wait, or I'm not comfortable with that. Learn how to hear no's or push back to your opinions calmly. It's not the end of a conversation. If you handle a no smartly, it may just be the beginning of more conversations. So the principle of charity personal challenge this week is, can you begin to hear the no's to your points of views as, wait, I'm just not comfortable with that. Emil, on that note, what's the question and our topic for today? Thanks so much, Lloyd. Our topic today is who has it harder, women or men? Now, women have by and large lived under the yoke of patriarchy in various forms for as long as, well, certainly as long as civilizations have existed. So it's with some trepidation and a little bit of cheekiness that we are airing the headwinds that face women alongside those uh, that face men. Now, there's the danger, of course, of of moral equivalence, where two views are put side by side, giving the impression that they're both equal weight, when they're clearly not. And if our lens was the world as a whole, then there is no doubt that you can't compare the headwinds facing women with those of men, as there is still legally sanctioned sex discrimination against women in so many countries. But if we focus in on the West and on countries where formal discrimination ended on the tailwind of second wave feminism in the 70s, there's actually a more nuanced and complicated story to tell. The nuanced story, unfortunately, though, doesn't include sexual violence, where in Australia, women are far more likely to experience it than men, particularly if it's with one's partner. And I imagine this statistic replicates across so many countries. But interestingly, if all forms of violence are taken into account, men are actually more likely than women overall to be victims of violence, noting that the perpetrators of violence, including sexual violence, are predominantly men. But if we move away from violence to areas like education, health, political participation or equality in the workforce, things are far more equal today than they were a half century ago. In some areas like political participation, women are still vastly underrepresented. In others like the workforce, things have improved significantly, noting though that there's still a way to go to achieve equality. And let's not forget that domestic work, including caring, is still far too often assumed to be uh, women's work and unpaid work at that. But in other areas like education, one could reasonably take the view that men are now lagging women with the completion gap at universities in the US, showing that it's now as unequal in favour of women as it was in favour of men 50 years ago. In fact, there's a whole range of areas now in which men fare worse than women, from the basics of life expectancy to drug addiction to suicide rates to a job market where traditional female jobs are growing much faster than traditionally male jobs. There's a real concern for the future of our boys. 
But arguably the biggest shift for men is in the definition of masculinity itself. Feminism challenged the patriarchal belief that women were meant to stay at home, nurture their family, be polite and gentle, and stay out of public life because they weren't rational enough for the big decisions, whereas men define themselves as powerful, public-facing, competitive and rational. But as women have claimed the right to be both the homemaker and corporate leader, to be both emotionally open and highly rational, to be caring and competitive, it has necessarily shaken the core of masculinity itself, as masculinity was only stable because it defined the feminine as what it was not. Some men, particularly those who are highly educated with well-paying jobs, are, you know, they're, they're largely weathering and, in fact, benefiting from this identity storm by accepting that many expressions of masculinity have been highly toxic, not, not only to women, um, but also to themselves. And these men have been on a journey to reclaim their vulnerability, opening themselves up to deeper relationships, including child caring. But for other men, particularly those whose jobs are being replaced by machines and who've lost their traditional role as breadwinner and protector, this gender shakeup has left them adrift. What does it mean to be a man these days in a world that rightly wants to open up all opportunities to everyone, regardless of gender? Is there a way for masculinity to, de to define itself, to find solid ground without excluding women? And on the other side, why does the feminist goal of true equality still seem out of reach in so many spheres? How do we root out unconscious bias and structural sexism? And finally, how does the current expansion of gender to include trans, non-binary and a raft of other gender expressions further complicate notions of masculinity and femininity? Although I should note that this isn't the focus of this episode and we are planning and hoping to have an episode on gender itself sometime in the near future. I also want to add the caveat that any talk about women and men, femininity and masculinity can easily fall into stereotyping. It's hard to talk about groups without flirting with stereotypes. And I hope listeners recognize that none of this applies to any individual woman or man, as we're all different and have different experiences. Now, Lloyd, I have three teenage boys, one of whom is your godson. So the crisis in masculinity is personal for me as I, I feel their confusion about what being a man really means. At the same time, I spent many years at university studying feminist philosophy, and I've always considered myself and still very much do as a feminist. Who have we got, Lloyd, to help us through this big topic? Emil, our two guests today are Caroline Lambert and Matt Tyler. Caroline has been contributing to social change for over 35 years, particularly in the area of gender equality. She's held senior leadership roles as the executive director of the YWCA Australia and as the director of research, policy and advocacy at the International Women's Development Agency. She's also a former board chair of Women's Housing Victoria, a former vice president of Amnesty International Australia and is a director of Arts Access Victoria. Caroline currently works as a consultant to feminist and human rights organizations globally and in Australia, and she's interested in how organizations can create new tools to harness the idea of power with rather than power over. Caroline holds a doctorate from the University of Melbourne. Emil, our other guest today is Matt Tyler. Matt is an executive director of the Men's Project at Jesuit Social Services, working with a team committed to providing leadership on the reduction of violence and other harmful behaviours prevalent among boys and men. Prior to joining Jesuit Social Services, Matt worked as a fellow for Harvard's Government Performance Lab, an economist on Australia's foreign aid program focused on Southeast Asia, a policy advisor to the Australian Labor Party, and a strategy consultant for Australia's largest companies. He's also been a researcher seeking to improve Indigenous Australians' men's health. Matt holds a Master of Public Policy from Harvard's Kennedy School and an Honours in Economics from Monash. Emil, today we've got two guests with deep expertise in their areas. There are high stakes in advocating for men and for women, as there's often competition for government resources. Let's see today if it's a zero-sum game or if there's a sense of shared destiny. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Thank you both, Caroline and Matt, so much for being on the podcast. That's a mammoth topic we've got here. And 
you know, we'd like to focus primarily on the Western post-industrialized countries, knowing, of course, we're all in Australia, rather than having too broad a lens. And with that in mind, I'd love to start with you, Caroline. So, so we're going to dive more deeply into the whole range of headwinds facing women in this episode. But just to set the scene, can you give us a brief overview of the areas you see women and girls struggling in or facing inequalities? Sure. Thanks, Anil. It's such a great topic and it's so important for all of us. And for women in Australia, I mean, there has been a lot of progress. A hmm. hundred years ago, I wouldn't have had a mortgage. I wouldn't have been a CEO of an organisation. Hmm. Uh, but there are still significant challenges that face women in a way that is different to men. So, for example, I still walk with keys between my fingers if I'm walking late at night and I don't go for a walk down the creek after sunset. There are things that I do on a regular basis that make my experience of this community less than it is for particularly straight men. And when we look, so that's in your individual lives and within our families, we know that women in our community experience intimate partner violence at higher levels than men. It's it's not just uh, an expression of physical violence, it's the coercive control that men can operate over the women in their relationships. When we look at our institutions, we see that women are underrepresented in our institutions. Uh, And so in our current parliament... For example, if we look at our rankings against other Western countries, we're 58th in the world for the representation of women in parliament. And when you look at the representation of Indigenous women in parliament, only 0.6% of the current members of the lower house of the Australian parliament are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander women. And it's this diversity lens that is really important uh, across all of these ideas. If you look, for example, at um, sexual abuse, 90% of women with intellectual disability have experienced sexual abuse and 68% of women with intellectual disability will have been subjected to that sexual abuse before they're the age of 18. And when you look then at economic indicators, um, I'm going to use superannuation as the example. Sure. 25% of women finish their working lives with no superannuation. That's compared to 20% of men. And if you want to look at the differences for a woman who was born overseas... 32% of women end their working life with no super compared to 22% of men who are born overseas. And I can't actually tell you the story about Indigenous women's superannuation because there isn't any data. So those sorts of things, if we look into our broader community around leadership in private sector, there's a 2019 study uh, that shows that there are more men in Andrew uh, in Australia called Andrew who hold CEO roles than there are women uh, who hold CEO roles, and that's in our top 100 companies. So, you know, those are some wow. of the challenges that we're facing. That's great. I mean, Andrew was the most common name in 1972, the year I was born. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I apologise on behalf of the Andrew. <laughs> That's um, so. I, I have to very, intervene. Yeah. yeah, that is the fact that Emil knows that is deeply depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Caroline. Well, look, we're going to touch on a whole range of those topics um, as as we dive deeper. So, Matt, just coming to you with the same question to give us a brief overview of the headwinds as you see them for men and boys. What, what are they struggling with, and what are the areas of inequalities for men? Yeah, thanks, Emil, and it's um, it's good to be here with you all. Um, before I get there, Emil, I just want to acknowledge some of what Carolyn's just said. I, I think, you know, as a son of a single mum who pushed back against um, some of the norms that Carolyn has touched on, the reality is we still live in a, in a society that values the masculine over the feminine. 
I think as it relates to to men, um, we're, we're seeing significant shifts socially, significant shifts economically that are having a really significant impact on the lives of men and boys. Uh, we're seeing a decline in male-dominated professions um, as it relates to mental health, mental illness. It's um, it's something that affects all genders, but the reality is six out of eight suicides in Australia every day are men. Our prison populations, uh, you know, over 95% of adults and young people in prison are men and boys, and even in our schools, 80% of expulsions in Victorian schools are boys and so there's really significant challenges facing our our boys and men you know the most common victim of violence in australia today is men Mm. and we know that 95 percent of the time when violence is being used it's because of the behavior of a man and that has profound impacts on women and children and so I think some of what we try to do is to get to the underlying root causes of some of these challenges and much of it, the core of much of this relates to patriarchy. You know, that, that is ever-present. It continues to subjugate women and, of course, it's not in the interests of men themselves. And so I think a conversation that pushes towards underlying root causes of some of the challenges we're touching on I think is a really important part of this yeah and and the interdependence that we need both to flourish in order for either of them to flourish is 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 a conclusion I came to not to jump to my personal conclusion after this research but it feels so intertwined the fates of both men and women but Caroline so coming back to you more specifically just thinking about the promise of second wave feminism in the 70s which would allow women to have equal access to the male sphere choice of employment equal pay leadership, public office. Diving a bit more detail into this, how are we going with that project and what is standing in the way of true equality? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the favourite tools that I have in the work that I do is a conceptualisation of what it takes to drive genuine gender equality. Mm. And it's a, a tool that divides change, social change, into four quadrants. And it says in order to have progress towards whether it's gender equality, racial equality, um, a more equal world for people with disability, you need to create change in these four areas. You need to create the policy and legislation change that we've seen with, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act. Uh, We've seen with the establishment of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So you've got these tools that exist that say, We want to outlaw discrimination and so we're going to set that up in a legal context. And then you need to put the resources to it. So there's no good having uh, a series of laws if you don't also resource the mechanisms that enable people to create change. Uh, So it might be that you've got a funding stream for a domestic violence shelter or women's health services. But what we see is that those are the types of changes that have been enacted either in whole or in part over the last, you know, many decades. And yet we've still got problems. And we've got problems not just for women, not just for men. So what else is going on? And that's the other side of the quadrants, which is what is our individual consciousness telling us about the roles that women and men play? And beyond that, what are we What are we drawing on that we've coded as masculine? Somebody who identifies as a man can be bold and audacious, but somebody who identifies as a woman who does the same thing is bossy and a ball breaker. Uh, So the same behaviour is coded differently depending on how people perceive your gender and the same behaviour exists then in a broader social script the big stories that we tell about how we understand ourselves in the world, the social norms and stories Mm. that underpin how we understand what's okay for a girl to do and what's okay for a boy to do. And more than that, that sets the script that says to be a man you've got to do this and Mm. to be a real woman 
you need to behave in this way. Mm. So being able to work across those four quadrants is really critical. And fundamentally what you're getting at is how power operates and how power is deployed in the interests of a very small minority. So, Caroline, just diving a bit more into equal pay itself, often the news makes it out to be quite simple that the reason women are paid less must be due to discrimination. But as I understand it, gender pay gaps are not a comparison of like roles. Instead, they show the differences between the average pay of women and men across the workforce as a whole. It seems, from my reading, there's about a 14% pay gap in Australia. And the reasons given for it in, in my research include female-dominated industries on average um, offer lower pay, mm. lack of workplace flexibility to help with childcare, mm. and, of course, discrimination itself, including the sort of unconscious biases that you talked about. And it seems they're about a third each, give or take. So I, I'd like to focus, first of all, on the predominant role women have in childcare. As I see it, there seem to be two different arguments that flow from this fact one is that women are disproportionately taking off time to look after infants at home, which takes them out of the workforce. And this gets them back on average in, in terms, sets them back in terms of their careers. And so the solution, as this argument goes, is to have more access to childcare, more flexibility at work for women and children, and for men also, and crucially, to do a greater share of childcare um, themselves at home. But there's another argument which says, we shouldn't try to discourage women from looking after infants at home if they want to, that there are deep cultural, even biological reasons why women might want to take time off disproportionately and obviously on average, as, as, a, as opposed to men, uh, to look after kids for the first part of their life. And that for many kids, that's a good thing. So, so this argument says it makes sense for there to be some career pay gap on average between men and women. How do you think about these two competing pools? And I guess sort of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome? This is one of my favourite topics um, because I think Please. it's at the crux of what's going on uh, mm. because what it relies on is a notion of biological essentialism that says mm. women are naturally more caring. And I just don't think that that's true. I think that men have been socialised from a tiny, tiny age to be discouraged from being in touch with their emotions. There's a, uh, there was a really fantastic American, African-American author called Bell Hooks and she wrote deeply about the way in which women and men are socialised into particular roles. And so, you know, you see it coming out. So, for example, one of the reasons that childcare is paid less is because it's seen as something that women naturally do mm. and so therefore mm. it is not skilled in a way that apparently I'm blocking my toilet is. Um, so uh, part of it is it's in the best interests of the patriarchy to undervalue the care work because... When you look at our systems of national accounts, how we determine what the, gen, you know, uh, our economic base is in the country, all, all of the unpaid care work doesn't get recognised. And yet it's something like a $30 trillion contribution to the global economy, the fact that somebody in the household gets up and keeps it going. Can I just tease apart these two yeah. things? Because there's women are being, their work at home predominant number of women who work at home is being undervalued by the economy. But then there's the question of even if they were, it was being valued, it might still set them back if they were returning to different careers in the workforce, it might set them back. And therefore, there's on average likely to be an unequal yeah. pay because women are, you know, might be a year or two behind and that obviously compounds and then there are other childcare issues. Do you think in, in sort of your utopian world of you know, realistic utopian world, are um, women and men doing the same amount of infant childcare? I think they should be. Wow. I think that there is a myth that is perpetrated mm. that says men are incapable of caring. And I think mm. that it's it's not true. I think we probably work in different ways, but I work in different ways to other women. Uh, mm. So, But there are strong social scripts that tell us that you've got to behave in a particular way. And 
I, you know, it's I imagine if men true. were doing that role, they'd be paid for it. That's the, well, that would be yeah. <laughs> would be yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also think you know it's incredibly restricting to men to not be able to do that. And there's yeah. you know there's a great statistic. It, it talks about the fact that the cohort of people that work the longest hours in Australia are men of a reproductive age. Mm. Now, the fact that I've even just put men of a reproductive age tells us about the strength of the social scripts because people don't usually say that in the same way that they don't usually talk about working fathers. The dominant discourse is still one of working mothers and that damages mothers and it damages fathers. That's, that is great to hear. There is a, I do feel as much as there's a right to work and career on the side of women, the right to care is something which men talk probably not enough about. Yeah, Absolutely. Matt, let me move to you then and just staying with jobs. You know, there is a lot of focus on STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, maths, and the low number of women in STEM professions. But at the same time, my understanding, which is what you, you said earlier, is that job growth is predominantly now coming from not STEM jobs, but from what I saw, I don't know if he coined the term Richard Reeves from the Brookings Institutes called HEAL jobs, healthcare, education, administration, literacy, which are predominantly held by women. And, and we, we know that in education, women are doing better. I've read that in the US, the highest GPAs are two-thirds girls and bottom two-thirds boys. And completion rates at unis in the US are unequal, as unequal in favour of girls now as they, are, as they were in favour of boys 50 years ago. So men might currently be ahead in the workplace, but is it reasonable to assume that with the job market moving towards traditionally female jobs and the next rate wave of graduates, predominantly women, their men are likely to underperform in the future in the labour market. And, and how much of this is stratified by, by class? I want to come back to something Carolyn mentioned around socialisation. We do a lot of work in schools and we see from a very early age that there is pressure placed upon boys to make decisions around things as simple as subject selection. And so if you've got a situation where a boy might feel ashamed to pursue home economics or drama or something that would lead them into caring professions, Mm. and at the same time, as you've pointed out, those professions are the very professions that are growing, Mm. we're going to have a skills mismatch inevitably. Um, And there's a whole set of factors that feed into that. But if manufacturing, the focus of this conversation is obviously Western world, Australian, if we're facing the unfortunate reality that manufacturing jobs are declining, um, mm. we know that the mining boom will only go for so long, then we've got to think really carefully about the underlying value that we place on caring professions and the extent to which we're encouraging our boys and then also our men to pursue those occupations. Uh, I think the question you raise around class is a really important one. The returns to education have never been higher. And put another way, increasingly, if you haven't got a post-secondary education, and to Caroline's point around plumbers, or you're not in a, this current moment is a highly lucrative trade, Mm. you're in a lot of strife. And we know that young men, as it currently stands, are much less likely to pursue postgraduate education. Like we we know that um, the performance of our young men relative to young women at university is, is inferior. And so if, you, if you're living in a, a macro context where the returns to education are increasing and we know that men and boys are falling behind as it relates to their performance post-school, then again, class is going to play a really significant role. Yeah, I've read somewhere that, you know, one could reasonably say that we're sort of moving into a a woman's world in a sense where a lot of the things that, you know, structural shifts in society are moving towards areas that women are proving to be better at the men. But again, you know, we'll dig into some of the reasons for that um, a bit more in a bit. Caroline, 
Just coming back to one of the other key reasons for the gender pay gap, which is society valuing what's traditionally been male and female work differently, which you talked about. The most extreme version you talked about being domestic work, childcare by mothers, which isn't really valued in the economy at all. But I guess looking outside the home at paid employment, an economist might say that jobs are valued based on all the normal economic principles, supply and demand, and the dollar amount represents, the dollar amount paid represents in a market economy, the actual value to society of those jobs. The fact that a nurse is paid less than a doctor is not because of the hours worked or the difficulty of the work, it's because of the value that flows. Do you think there's structural sexism that distorts the market economy for jobs? And and is the answer to boost the pay even artificially for traditionally female work, or is it to get more women into traditionally male jobs? And what happens if women don't want to be engineers at the same rate as men do? I think they're great questions. Economics is very often presented as a value-free proposition. Mm. It's a, you know, it's it's just representing the real world and the way that the free hand of the market moves unobtrusively through society. Economics is fundamentally valued. When I was doing my doctoral research, it was really interesting. I was talking to human rights officials and trade officials, and the language of belief permeated the economics and trade officials in a way that was staggering. Hmm. So it is fundamentally predicated on values and it is predicated on patriarchal and many other values as well. You know, when you look at the history of slavery and and race, uh, that that gives you some other values that flow through Mm. today into the economic systems. But the economic systems that say we are going to value engineering more than we are going to value caring are baked into the beginning of our industrial communities. Mm. And so we you, you look back at the ways in which masculine skills were coded as being of higher value and you look at the ways at which feminine skills were coded as being of lesser value. So what you do need to do is fundamentally challenge both that valuing, those value judgments that we ascribe to gender, And you also need to put temporary special measures in place. So Mm -hmm. those are the things which say we have undervalued these historically and so we need to now raise the the wages. So so you're saying that even the sort of neutral supply and demand of the way the market works based on individuals with their individual preferences, that those preferences themselves have been encoded through patriarchy From to the say, very get-go. actually, I'm happy to pay more for this engineering yep. work because it feels more valuable than this care work, but you don't. Yeah. So, yep. so it's a sort of a deeper ideology that sits underneath what individuals value, not just the sort of so societal s- structure. Absolutely. And, you know, we've we've created this system which values the private realm of the family as predominantly feminine and yes. as being where you do the free labour. As I said yeah. before, it doesn't even show up in our accounts of the economic health of society. And uh, But, you know, so long as we we value the the work that is in the public sphere higher and we code it as masculine, then we're going to continue with these gender wage gaps. Well maybe if we value the private sphere we'll be a lot more productive as a as a country on paper than we than we currently are. Absolutely. Matt, for men like myself who are fortunate to, you know, to be educated and have, have good jobs, it's been wonderful to be part of this journey of feminism. As I said in my introduction, you know, women have the right to be, although we know how, how hard in practice it can be, to be both the homemaker and the corporate leader, to be emotionally open and highly rational, to be caring and competitive. But because masculinity is, you know, defined itself in opposition to femininity, this opening up of horizons for women, it seems, is, has put masculinity in, into crisis. And as we know, crises can be great opportunities for growth, but they can, they can be painful too. How do you see the future of masculinity? You know, there are wonderful opportunities for men to claim their caring parts, their vulnerability, to get closer to their kids and friends. And there's much soul-searching for men to do too, to reckon with the more toxic and harmful parts. But, but like everyone, men are tribal too. You know, men want to feel pride in what makes them distinct. 
So Matt, what do you think makes men distinct and worthy of pride when these gender roles are being flattened? Emil, I'll um, disagree with one premise of the question. I don't think um, femininity has led to a crisis of masculinity. Hmm. I, I, I think the ideas that underpin stereotypical masculinities have reached the end of their useful life. Isn't that because women have taken, women refusing to play the role of the opposite, which is where men wanted them to be? Not at all. I think this is part of the challenge we've got in this conversation. The the norms, and, and we'll be really concrete, the norms that may have served men well in a particular context, mm. such as inverted commas, a real man should always act tough, a real man should sort out problems on his own, um, a real man should use violence to get respect. Mm. These ideas are no longer serving men in most contexts. Now, don't get me wrong, if you're, if you're on the sporting field, dominance, aggression can have a really important role. I lived in the US for, um, for a number of years. If you're a young man on the south side of Chicago, you might have to act tough in order to make sure you survive. And yet we know rigid adherence to these ideas, and so adherence without being mindful of context can lead to devastating outcomes mm. for men themselves as it relates to their mental health, substance use. We know there are really tight links between these ideas and poor life outcomes for men. And in addition to that, we know that these ideals are t- tightly linked to the use of physical violence, sexual harassment. And so if we then pivot to, well, what is an alternative? What are the positive male roles and you know sense of self? that we can get behind. Right. And I think we're making good progress in this regard. Like we can be, like if, if we don't name the problem, we can be like fish in water. You know, we've mm. got to have a shared language. And I think the fact that we're having a conversation about masculinities, that's a really positive thing. Mm. In terms of an alternative, I think first and foremost, we've got to have a set of principles that underpin what, healthy masculinities looks like Mm. and professor michael flood has written on this works closely with us on our research it's got to be gender equitable they've got to be ideals that are not unique to men and boys themselves they can't be inherently gendered they've got to be diverse and they've got to be in the interests of men and boys themselves i i I think a principles-based approach will serve as well because if we start to create another man box, this idea that there's a set of traits or characteristics that are appropriate for men and boys in every context, every circumstance they face, then inherently that's going to fall short. That's the, the situation that we're in at the moment. And men and boys themselves tell us that, that they are perceiving social pressures. The majority are perceiving social pressures to adhere to these stereotypical ideals. And so we've got to have a nuanced conversation where we've got a set of principles to guide us, but we're not prescribing that, you know, men and, men and boys will always be vulnerable. Hmm. There's many circumstances where it's actually not going to be productive to be vulnerable, and yet there are circumstances where absolutely vulnerability is something that is in the interests of men and boys and people in their lives. And so there's a fair bit of nuance to understand the help men and boys understand the context they're in and then enable them to be free to choose how they show up unconstrained from these social expectations that are oftentimes placed upon them. So I guess I'm not I'm not going to be successful in asking you to give me three words that can define who men are. (laughs) Anil you've answered your own question. I mean, it's a, it's a, look, it's a tougher sell, that, isn't it? Because nuance is tough, obviously, as you say. Any words you use end up um, excluding people who don't feel like they fit in, excluding other, other, the other gender um, who is like, well, we want to be like that too. But it is a harder sell when you can't have a slogan, in a sense, or say, like, men being strong or being courageous or being or protecting or any of those things are virtues, like... Can't we come up with a list of 
seven virtues, even if they they are both vulnerability and strength? Would love to, Emil. I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to tell you that we could sort of tie this away with <laughs> with a sort of nice little little ribbon. But um, yeah, I, I guess if you view it through the lens of inverted commas marketing and sell, I, I think you're probably right. And there are ways to engage men and boys in this work which appeals to, and it, again, varies by context, but appeals to their own self-interests. Like we want our men and boys to flourish and I think in having these conversations we can go into them to say, what do you think about some of these stereotypical ideas about what it means to be a man? Because we know from research that they're not serving you well. So it leads to my next question about where can they get a sense of pride from because I, I do have some teenage boys. But I was just thinking, you know, like the left rightly looks to structural issues when a marginalised group is underperforming. You know, if, if we notice rates of Indigenous youth in prison, they're, they're seen as part of a range of deep structural issues, including discrimination rather than, you know, being the fault of any individual in, Indigenous man. But when it comes to looking at those who've got power, the left tends to focus less on structural issues and blame individuals in a sense. And this is how the term toxic masculinity has landed for many men. It might not be the intention, but I've just seen how it's sort of landed. Like they're being told they are toxic. For young men and boys, having a key part of your core identity be called toxic doesn't seem likely to bring them on side. My eldest teenage boy, I've got three boys, has been a bit inspired by Andrew Tate, you know, not, not for his misogynist views, but just in the way he genders that sense of pride amongst young men, getting them fit and strong. He's now in the gym all the time. And there's a sort of standing up straight, feeling good about yourself sense. But I asked my son if there were other role models on TikTok he's come across who can sort of boost male pride through through the great qualities and virtues of boys and men without descending into the sort of toxicity and misogyny. And and it was so sad, Matt. He just couldn't point to many, if any. So it seems that boys are presented with this choice between confessing to being toxic or following some quite dodgy, to say the least, misogynists in the manosphere who, who tell them they shouldn't be ashamed of who they are. How do you think about this challenge? I think, firstly, we don't use the term toxic masculinity. Uh, mm. I think it's unfortunate that uh, that term lands exactly the way you've characterised, that many men and boys will perceive that as men are toxic. Mm. The term instead is focused on the reality that stereotypical ideas of masculinities can be toxic. Mm. And so um, in, in the realm of public discussion, we've determined, well, not worthwhile using that term because it doesn't actually serve its intended purpose. Mm. I think on Andrew Tate, the misogynistic, classist, homophobic bile that spews forward from Andrew Tate and the way he combines that, as you've pointed out, with, um, I guess, uh, legitimate Mm. overtones around living a purposeful life, uh, hard work, um, Mm. determination, that is a path well trod. There has been extremists over centuries who have mixed legitimate messages with extremist hateful messages. Mm. And so there'll be more Andrew Tates. He's not unique. Um, When I was growing up, the equivalent was Eminem. I think the interesting question is what needs is that content fulfilling for men and boys who are watching it. Yes, and how can we fill it without polluting it with the other side? Where are those, you know, be proud, you're a man, you work hard, be strong, you know, whatever those virtues are, but done in a way that is good. Yeah, yeah, and I'd argue that that, that there's a search, and it's not unique to boys and men, but there's a search for identity, there's a search for belonging, There's a search for connection. And the way Andrew Tate fills those desires is to other, to say you want to be in the alpha male group. You don't want to be in the piss-weak group of boys who are sissy boys. And that is a form of belonging. That's a form of saying, yeah, I'm the alpha male, I'm the big dog, and I want to be like Tate. 
got money, got girls, etc. And that's a that's a narrative that I understand. That's short term fix. Mm. You know, many problems solved around mm. an artificial sense of belonging. I don't think these problems, Emil, can be solved through social media. I think if <laughs> your boy and I've just become a dad myself, and so this mm. this this is personal to a to a little boy. And yeah, if you're looking for role models, inverted commas, on social media, I think there's a problem. Like a lot of our work is focused on enabling people who are interacting with boys and men in our community every day. And role models are everywhere. I don't buy this narrative that Andrew Tate has emerged because there's a lack of male role models. I see role models in my life every day, my mates who are taking leave from work in order to look after their kids, my mates who are calling me who are saying, I'm struggling with this problem, crying on the phone. Like this, this, is, this is the reality of what masculinity looks like today. I think the job is to elevate those examples. Yes, yeah, we were just saying we're in a world, just to your point, where there's less connection of people with real with other real people. You know, my kids take the bus and they've got their earphones on and they're looking at TikTok. They're not, you know, looking around for male role models. They're, you know, they're, there's a lot of time spent on on TikTok, essentially. And so, you know, that's where you're like more likely to bump into people you don't know. But you're, you're right. Of course, role models are around everywhere and maybe that's our job to to be better as as leaders in the real world with young people to be better fathers i think that's right and it's to enable parents it's to enable teachers social workers to have these conversations with men and boys yeah because inevitably those algorithms will push the controversial the conflict ridden that that is Unfortunately, for the reasons I've touched on, what will what will bubble to the top? Yeah, I do think yeah. tech companies have a role here. You know, a bunch of our work is focused on child sexual abuse, abuse prevention, which is obviously very different to um, to some of what we're talking about here. But these algorithms play a really significant role in terms of shaping the content people receive. Yeah, no, it's a, it's 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 a great point. It's a great point. Just jumping a bit to a different topic, Caroline, what I really love about the work you're doing is that you're using the disrupting lens of feminism to redefine many norms we've taken for granted in the traditionally male sphere, like what it means to be a leader, how best to organise a company, even even just the norm of working crazy corporate hours. This is for me where feminism gets really inter- interesting intellectually, is it's a it's an opportunity not just for women to achieve equality with men in the playing field, but to redefine the playing field itself using some of the traditionally female virtues that are more about cooperation than individualistic competition, being emotionally open rather than just seeing emotions as weakness. Can you just sort of briefly, if this is a large task, take us through a crash course in this feminist rethinking of corporate of the corporate world, including leadership? Sure. I think that what we're seeing is that it's not just, you know, Tony Abbott used to used to say when he was talking about the fact that there weren't many women in cabinet they just need to knock on the door they just need to be at the table and what we're saying is first of all there's a power dynamic in that that is unrealistic uh it's still putting the power to open the door to invite to the table with men uh and secondly have you got the right table are Mm. you really are you really doing the right things. If you look, for example, at the ACT Legislative Assembly, they have changed the sitting hours to enable people who have caring responsibilities, whether that's men, women, whether it's for children or elders or in your local community. They've changed the the operating structure Mm. of uh, or or the, the, the culture of parliament, which says that you you sit through the night because it's you've got to be getting the work done so have we got the right table in place and the answer is no and have we got the right model of leadership in place and the answer is no our Mm. stories of leadership are still fundamentally framed on the battlefield 
with the king on the horse surveying, determining the course of the battle and then leading the charge. Working with other people, being able to acknowledge that you don't know the answers but that we believe in the collective power of all of our thoughts and valuing different ways of knowing, valuing a conversation that is about explicit understanding of the power dynamics that are going on in the decision. Those are the types of things that we need to do to reframe our understanding of what leadership is. Mm, mm, brilliant. I mean, I was thinking, though, and I, I, I find this not just fascinating, but I think just an incredible opportunity for men and women to sort of reevaluate things we've taken for granted. But I, I, I do wonder whether there's a danger of creating a new hierarchy where, you know, the traditional male virtues that you've talked about, that sort of competition hierarchy expertise, which you've I noticed in one of your papers, you were sort of calling into question a bit. And that, you know, then could be seen as less than, you know, I, I was thinking about primary school environments where the far majority of teachers are women and there's a lot of focus on empathy and sharing and verbal communication and sitting quietly and listening. And these are the things that have traditionally been in the female box, leaving, you know, physical expression, risk-taking competition seen as undesirable if you're a, a second grader sitting in class. How can feminism challenge and redefine the norms without just creating a new inverse hierarchy? I mean, I think part of the issue is that Sitting behind all of this is the idea that we ascribe a gender to behaviours and yeah. that's just not helpful. You yeah. know, we just need to have behaviours that are human, right? And uh, so it, I think we've got a lot to learn from the experiences of trans folk and, and their uh, navigations of masculinity and femininity. You know, we're, we're yeah. conducting this conversation as if there's two genders and we know that's yeah. not the case. Within our own country, when you look at the sister boys uh, and, and brother girls in Indigenous communities, uh, we know that there is a diversity of expressions of gender identity. Uh, and so part of the answer is going back to the earlier conversation, sitting in complexity. A friend was saying recently that prior to the Industrial Revolution, priority was singular. And post-Industrial Revolution, it's become plural. And this idea of the increasing complexity of the world is something that we actually have to learn to get comfortable with. So the, the solution, I think, is to celebrate diversity and to celebrate humanity rather than reifying masculinity or femininity and the, uh, the ways in which we've relied on shorthand valuing behaviours in this binary of male is good and female is less than. That's what we've got to break apart and open up the complexity of diversity. Yeah, I mean, that is that is the most brilliant goal. And it seems like, you know, feminism uses the role it's got in this binary to sort of hopefully break through and, and burst open the binaries themselves. And the proliferation of gender identities, I did mention in the introduction, that's going to be hopefully a separate topic on, on gender in the podcast one day. So I recognise that we are quite... Um, traditional here and in a little way backward facing in, in terms of the way we're looking at this. Matt, I'd like, this is a bit of a rambling question, but I would like to touch on the B word, biology, for a moment. Recognising that it can be a scary concept for many people, you know, the minute one talks about biological differences, the fear, of course, is that it can be used to justify discrimination. But on the other hand, if, if true biological differences are ignored, particularly by the left, it can become a feeding ground for many on the right who can dismiss the left and at the same time co-opt biology to justify traditional roles. Um, there's also the real difficulty of unpacking, as Caroline, you've talked about, what are genuine biological differences, what's culture, given culture makes its way into behaviour right from, from day one. Um, and of course, the fact that any differences are just differences in averages, and none of this has anything meaningful to say about individual men and women. But all that said, and please, I've you know, correct me if, if you feel I've got this wrong. My understanding is that there are some genuine biological differences forged in the womb that mean that on average, again, just on average, 
women are drawn more to people, to relationships, and men to things, to risk-taking, to aggression. And there's an argument that these play out in the choice of professions with men more drawn to fields like engineering and women to fields like psychology. And there's some evidence, as I understand it, that in more gender-equal societies where each gender is freer to choose the paths they want to follow, less burdened by these stereotypes, there's in fact more segregation um, in choice of professions. Matt, how can we most skillfully factor biology into our understanding of gender inequalities? Can it offer anything helpful in, by way of explanation as to why men and women act the way they do without you know, using it to justify discrimination? Mm, it's an important question. I think the unfortunate part of this conversation around um, you know, biology versus the impact of socialisation is that it oftentimes becomes a dichotomous conversation. And so first and foremost, acknowledge that biology plays a role. Um, it's a small role. Um, I, I'm not a geneticist, but my, my training is, uh, and Carolyn, apologies, man, is as, a, as an economist. Um, mm. And I have spent um, a significant period of time trans, translating research into practice. And so I've got a responsibility to understand the research evidence, noting that yes. that is not my training in terms of um being a geneticist, but the first thing to say is that um, at the extremes, biology plays a role. We know that if you go to the, the sort of the tip of the normal distribution on any um, skill and you touched on, say, engineering, that um, the um, at the extremes in terms of, um, uh, say, a quantitative skill set, men are more, um, more uh, likely to be brilliant in those sort of quantitative professions. Mm. And so acknowledge that. I think the second thing to say is that relative to what we know about um, the impact of socialisation, biology plays a very small role at the median. And so Mm. if we look at our whole population, about 5% of differences can be attributable to biology but a tremendous amount of difference is attributable to socialisation. And we see this in terms of the way, you know, intuitively you see, you look at the way that the role of men and women have changed over time. You look at the role that men and women play across different cultures, different countries. Um, If biology was such a significant contributor, then we wouldn't see those evolutions in the expectations of men and women and by extension the role they've played Australia in the 1950s is very different to Australia in 2023 and then the role of men and women here is very different to some countries overseas and so I think it would be a mistake to overestimate the impact of biology I think it's a contributor but I think it's a very small contributor relative to socialization and some of what we've touched on today. You know, my personal fear is that if biology isn't recognised, because it can be so easily co-opted, as you say, what's the motivation behind it? You know, it becomes a tool of patriarchy. But if we don't acknowledge it, we are leaving it to malintentioned groups to to use that rather than trying to um, to sort of uh, co-opt it into maybe a more productive narrative. I'm going to hand over to Lloyd. I want to just ask you both one quick question with a one-word answer. If you were to be born again today, Matt, would you prefer to come back as a boy or a girl? Couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Okay. Caroline, honestly. Yeah, yeah, no, I love being a woman. I, I do love being a woman, but I'm deeply curious about what it would be to be a man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd be very interested to uh, to come back as a woman. Prior to having um, my boy there, um, there was the inevitable question, do you, do you know the the gender? Right, yes. And the reason I say couldn't care less is we were going for a baby. Yeah. You know, I think to to strip back to the reality of humanness, that is something we need to push towards. And that's not to take away. I said to I said this to a really good friend of, of, of mine and she, she responded, don't take away my womanhood. It's not yeah. to say we can't get value from our gender but it is to say that you know there is so many more possibilities that are available to us if we discard the unhelpful constraints that come with gender yeah 
and recognize we're both we're all bound in a sort of shared fate um, or you know a virtuous cycle or an unvirtuous one that was part one of the conversation but next week we'll put caroline and matt on the couch and ask them some unfiltered questions on the principle of charity and if you're enjoying the show please leave a review tell your friends get the word out every little bit helps thanks so much and see you next week